How's everyone doing? It is Wednesday. You're listening to 97.5 FM KDEE. I am Agent P and we are Selling Sacramento. On today's show, we are talking about redlining in 2021. How can we put an end to it? Redlining. You've heard the expression. You've heard the word. You've probably heard a little bit about it, but aren't too sure about what it is. You're going to learn that today. You're going to learn how redlining began and how it is still influencing the economic gap, wealth gap in particular, how it's still hindering black and brown communities, black in particular. And my special guest today is going to share with us how it's also impacting entrepreneurs and the investment community. Get your pen and paper, take copious notes. We have solutions. We don't just bring you the problems and throw them at your feet and leave it for you to figure it out. We have solutions. We have guests on the show who are trailblazing, y'all, trailblazing, leading the way to these solutions. Big policy put these circumstances in place and it's going to take bigger policy and bigger courage to get us out. So let's talk a little bit first about what redlining is. Redlining is a discriminatory practice that puts services, financial and otherwise, out of reach for residents of certain areas based on race or ethnicity. It can be seen in the systemic denial of mortgages, insurance, loans, and other financial services based on location rather than on an individual's qualification and credit worthiness. Notably, the policy of redlining is felt the most by residents of minority neighborhoods. The history of redlining, the term was coined by sociologist John McKnight in the 1960s, and it derives from how the federal government and lenders would literally draw a red line on a map around the neighborhoods they would not invest in based on demographics alone. Yes, you heard that right. Black inner city neighborhoods were most likely to be redlined. Investigations found that lenders would make loans to lower income whites, but not to middle or upper income African-Americans. Indeed, in the 1930s, the federal government began redlining real estate, marking risky neighborhoods for federal mortgage loans on the basis of race. The result of this redlining in real estate could still be felt decades later. In 1996, Homes in redline neighborhoods were worth less than half that of the homes in what the government had deemed as best for mortgage lending. And that disparity has only grown greater in the last two decades. We've actually witnessed time and time again, countless stories of African-Americans who have their homes appraised. And when the appraiser visibly sees them, their appraisals come back in much less. On my Facebook page, I actually posted a story of a couple in the Bay Area who had their home appraised after putting $400,000 of upgrades in it. And when the appraisal came back in, it came back in 50% less. They asked a white friend of theirs to stand in their stead, pretend like they lived at the house, The white friend brought in pictures of themselves and their families to make it look like they lived there. And the the family contested the, the first appraisal, of course. So they got a second appraisal done. And guess how much the appraisal came back in for? 50% more. 
I'm going to research that article to see what happened to that appraiser. But that's an example of some discriminatory practices that are still occurring today as a result of this. So there's also evidence of what Midwest Bank, Midwest Bank Center CEO Orv Kimbrough calls corporate redlining. And as reported by the business journals, since peaking prior to the 2008 financial crisis, the annual number of loans to black owned businesses through the US Small Business Administration's 7A program decreased, ladies and gentlemen, by 84%. Think about that. When people say, oh, but these laws are in place now. The Fair Housing Act, you can't discriminate. Racism is over, equality for all. But what do the numbers say? What do the numbers among black home ownership, what, does, what do the black home ownership numbers say? What do the black owned business numbers say? What do the black owned entrepreneur numbers say? And it sounds really convenient to say, oh, just pull yourself up by your bootstrap because I know black people who own their own business and they're doing well and they did it and you should too. <laughs> if I had a dollar for every time I heard that when it occurred or was said to someone, I'd give it all to the black owned businesses who aren't being financed because of the color of their skin. That's what I'd do. And they'd probably fare better. Courts have determined that redlining is illegal when lending institutions use race as a basis for excluding neighborhoods from access to loans. In addition, the Fair Housing Act, which is part of the Civil Rights Act of 1968, prohibits discrimination in lending to individuals and neighborhoods based on their racial composition. However, the law does not prohibit excluding neighborhoods or regions on the basis of geological factors such as fault lines or flood zones. And now get this, while redlining neighborhoods or regions based on race is illegal, lending institutions may take economic factors into account when making loans. Lending institutions are not required to approve all loan applications on the same terms and may impose higher rates or stricter repayment terms on some borrowers. This is legal. This is legal, you all. However, these considerations must be based on economic factors and cannot, under U.S. law, be based on race, religion, national origin, sex, or marital status. So let me tell you how they do it. Banks may legally take the following factors into consideration when deciding whether to make loans to applicants and on which terms. Credit history. Lenders may legally evaluate an applicant's credit worthiness as determined by FICO scores and reports from credit bureaus. That sounds right, right? If that seed has been planted in our head, if your credit score is bad, you can't get the loan. But think about it. How many of you out there listening right now have a bad credit score, not because you don't pay your bills on time, but because of some unfortunate circumstance? And there should be able for you to there there should be a way for you to address that. There should be a way for them to go in through the back door and not hold to the letter of the law. But because that's a factor and it's a legal factor and it's a way that they can discriminate, legally discriminate, it keeps a lot of African Americans or black individuals out of the market. Income. Lenders may consider an applicant's regular source of funds, which can include income from employment, business ownership, investments, or annuities. Property condition. A lending institution may evaluate the property on which it is making the loan, as well as the condition of nearby properties. These evaluations must be based strictly on economic considerations. Neighborhood amenities and city services, the lending institution's portfolio. The point I'm making here is that it is subjective. It's a personal, it is a, the individual who holds the power to make the decision, it's up to them. And they can use these guidelines to determine who they give loans to and who they don't. What direction the financing goes in and which direction it doesn't. I am always excited about every guest on my show 
as I am today, Mariah Lichtenstern. This is one bad woman, y'all. Bad meaning good. <laughs> bad meaning good, not, as Run DMZ says, not bad meaning bad. At the intersection of technology, entertainment, and venture capital, Mariah Lichtenstern accelerates positive social, economic, and environmental impact through entrepreneurship. An alumna of UC Berkeley, USC, and UCLA, go on, Mariah. She is the founding partner of Diverse City Ventures and managing director of the Founder Institute here in Sacramento, the Sacramento, California chapter, which was recognized by Forbes magazine as the third most gender diverse chapter in the world. She serves as an advisor for the California Clean Energy Fund's CalSeed Initiative, Berkeley Skydeck, Village Capital Finance Forward, Fourth Wave Female Founder Accelerator, Hayden Al, is it AI or Al? Hayden AI? Hayden AI. Based on her background, it couldn't have been Al. It's got to be AI. <laughs> Ethics Advisory and Yale University School of Medicine's Digital Innovation and Diversity Initiative. She serves on those boards and the SAC Metro Chamber of Commerce. She's a member of the UCLA Ventures and Aspen Tech Policy Hub Fellow, where she developed the Tech Funding Equity Project to advocate solutions to the tech industry funding gap. A multifaceted connector, Mariah works with amazing people she feels incredibly fortunate to know and strives to build bridges between those with privilege and those with value but underutilized perspectives. She's driven to empower founders and filmmakers of all backgrounds, inclusive of those underrepresented by virtue of otherness, including but not limited to gender, identity, culture, geography, and social economic status. Miss Mariah, wow. Unmute yourself, honey, and say hello to everybody. Hello, hello, hello. I am so happy to be here with you, Keisha. Thank you for me. Awesome, awesome. I just turned you up a little bit on my end. Let's see there. So, okay. all right. We are excited that you are on the show today about this particular topic. And we're going to take a break. But when we come back, like I told Mariah, y'all, it's going to be the Mariah show. <laughs> Everything that she does, she actually has a special uh, initiative going on. We're going to get to that too, but it's a part of the solution. And so if you're listening right now on 97.5, we are also broadcasting on Facebook, Facebook Live, uh, YouTube, Periscope, Twitter. We're everywhere. Just go in and Google or search Selling Sacramento, Selling Sacramento on the radio, key, agent key, and you will see Mariah's beautiful face. And when we come back from the break, we're going to dig right into this red line, give you all some more information about it and the things that we can do to turn it all around. You're listening to 97.5 FM KDEE. I am Agent Key, and we will be right back. Hey. It's my favorite appraiser watching today. Hey, Ryan. Big conversation. Glad you're having it. It's incredible to see how neighborhoods were carved up years ago and how that has had an undeniable generational effect. Yes. And I think Mariah is perfect to have this discussion with. So good to see you, Ryan. Rose, thanks for having this conversation. We have to continue to highlight these things that are still happening and continually work to change them at all levels. Yes. From the individual agent all the way to the giant brokers. Absolutely, Miss Rose. Daphne, people of color are generally hired last and fired first. This is a legal method of discrimination. Discriminating. Yeah, bankers get bailed out when they have issues. Locality Care's funding is going out because it's affecting other than people of color's credit score. We need to determine another method to make the playing field equitable. You're absolutely right. Thank you all for watching today. Appreciate this. If you're watching and you have any comments or questions or feedback for Mariah, feel free to type it in wherever you're watching and we'll pull it up. We'll take a moment to acknowledge your question. We want to make sure that this is a discussion where everyone's side is heard. Um, 
Keep your feelings at the door. This is not about politics. This is about what is right and being fair and equitable. So we're glad that you all are watching today. Let's see, did I miss Oh, so when we come back on the show, I don't know. Should we? Really, it's how come you feel right? I always ask you, I always defer to you when you say yeah. that. You know, and I think it's, it comes down to how much info that you think you get, right? Yeah. If you think she has more than you have time, then, then no vocal. But if you think, you know, or, or just let me. This is what I like to see you with your phone systems. Hear their questions and say thanks for calling and addressing the show. With them off the air? Right, because what happens is that pen over there? You know, I got to put the number back in front of me. I haven't used the phones in so long. Oh, I think I have one in my back. But I would really like to see you get used to hearing the question. You know, really, I am more concerned about somebody calling in with a crazy question. Oh, not for little crazy questions. Let me tell you, we had someone uh, hack into Clubhouse the other day, Black Politicos, and I said to myself, I'm like, they are so intimidated by us being here that they are going out of their way to try to intimidate us off the platform. But sorry, we're already roughed up and resilient, so we will persist. Hey everyone, we're back. You're listening to 97.5 FM KDEE. I am Agent Key and we are Selling Sacramento. On today's show, redlining in 2021. How can we put an end to it? My special guest today, Miss Mariah Lichtenstern. And before we took the break, I gave you her pedigree. This woman is just extremely awesome. Mariah, I would like for you to Share with the audience, you're the founding partner of Diverse City Ventures and managing director of the Founder Institute. Tell us about both organizations and your work in both of those. Okay, so um, thank you again, Keisha, for having me and for uh, allowing me this opportunity to speak with your guests. I am I, I'm live in Sacramento, been here since 2006, went to junior high here, so I'm very glad to be able to have the opportunity to um, to be in my own neighborhood, so to speak. Yeah. Um, Diversity Ventures, as you mentioned, it's a it's a venture capital firm, and it's it's the type of firm that I would love to see our communities be more aware of. Um, venture capital is a form of uh, business capital that is um, that is equity. It is essentially an ownership stake in your company. And because of that, unlike debt equity, um, money does not come out of your, it generally does not come out of your business to repay it while you're growing. It is it is essentially growth capital. It is also value added capital. So it usually comes with perks and benefits of the platform of the firm, which may include network, it may include advisory assistance and getting through business challenges. It may include a role in governance. So uh, my particular firm is around impact, social, economic, and environmental. So social could mean diversity, equity, and inclusion. It could mean um, you know, quality of life. It could mean a lot of things. And very much a generalist in that. Economic, uh, again, it could be FinTech, it could be you know closing the wealth gap, it could be financial management, and then things that impact our climate. So those are the areas that I focus on. Um, now, the Founder Institute is the world's largest pre-seed accelerator. What I mean by pre-seed is that before a company uh, raises outside capital beyond friends and fam family. And it's a tech accelerator. So all of these uh, companies that come through this accelerator are technology enabled. So we're actually in 200 chapters around the world. I founded the uh, Sacramento chapter, or launched the Sacramento chapter. And we have uh, lots of mentors from the region who have launched successful companies, have had exits, which means they've sold their companies. Um, they've, uh, you know, grown other companies, done a lot of different things. So we have tons of mentors and it's essentially a 14 week program that can take a, a company from idea stage or just early traction through customer validation, uh, 
launch and we help them grow. And once a, a company graduates from our program, we have a lot of value added support services. We have an incredible support team out of headquarters in Silicon Valley. And so, yeah, I actually graduated from the Silicon Valley chapter back in 2015. And I, I mean, I made the drive from Sacramento <laughs> to Silicon Valley every week um, and stacked my days with uh, with meetings when I went. And, you know, I'd come back in the wee hours in the morning sometimes, but I wanted to bring that resource here and uh, to tap into some of the, the global deal flow of the Founder Institute to uh, support what we're doing at Diversity Ventures. So um, it's kind of like a long story about how I got into it. And I don't want that to take the, the shine of, of the topic that we're in today. So we might just lace it in a little bit. Yeah, I appreciate that. And based on what you are involved in, I know that you also now, and this will kind of tie us back into the redlining, you have a petition out to remove barriers to startup capital, democratize accreditation. I'm reading directly from the petition. Can you tell us a little bit about that movement? And it's on moveon.org. That's right. And if you want a quick link to it, I mean, I, I posted on social media and whatnot. This is part of the Tech Funding Equity Project. And the website for that is techfundingequity.com. Um, and again, you can go to you can go to my Facebook, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, and you'll see links to the project there. You'll see links on the website directly to the petition. But essentially, you know, I mentioned, you know, what venture capital is. And for the most part, for venture capitalists to invest in companies, they have to have certain things in place. They have to have, you know, a team, generally speaking, uh, someone to build products, someone to lead the business development. Uh, they have to have a, a product, uh, maybe some early market validation. So it takes, you know, a significant amount of work to get to that stage. You know, we still take a lot of risks, but even if you know, a company is built out and, and has some traction and uh, is growing. I mean, companies fail. And so we take a, a lot of risks. So we want to minimize as much risk as possible. So for companies to get to a place of, of funding, typically they have to go through what's called a friends and family round. And I think part of this is, um, you know, part of it is just like a barrier to entry, to be honest. But there, there are, you know, bona fide reasons for wanting the company to de-risk and get to this point. So, you know, if you look at some of the infographics that I have on the tech funding equity site, you know, it, it, it cites, you know, of the money that, that goes to startups each year, 60% is from founders own resources and about 38% will ultimately come from uh, friends and family. Very little actually comes from angel investors, people who invest their own um, money that aren't in your friends and family or from venture capitalists, some, somewhere around 2%. So, you know, the, the friends and family round is the most significant source of capital beyond founders putting their own money in through credit cards, equity, savings, and all of that. So essentially that where this accreditation comes in is that there are rules that the Securities and Exchange Commission has in place. Now, what is the Securities and Exchange Commission in the first place? Now, the way I found out about what it was is that when I was in graduate school studying motion picture producing, um, I had to you know, pay my way through college, right? And so I got into the finance industry. I was originating mortgages and um, doing that as I earned my, my life and health licenses and my FINRA licenses, which allowed me to be a financial advisor and financial planner. And so I would sit down in families' homes, go over their budgets, help them strategize their wealth building strategies, et cetera. So to, in order to get those licenses, I had to learn about these laws that were put in place during the Great Depression um, that established the Securities and Exchange Commission. And I had to learn about the regulations that the actual Securities and Commission, Exchange Commission um, governed. So they govern the law through these rules and regulations. Okay. So... What is a security? A security is basically anything that you raise capital for. Any kind of investment it can be a, a, a note, a debt, you know, structure. It could be an equity investment. Um, you know, a film is a property that's a security. Uh, any, any business offering, if you're raising money from investors, it's a security. And so there's laws that govern that. And I also have an infographic on the website that talks about the different kinds of offerings and um, just, you know, a summary of the most popular offering types. So essentially, uh, there are rules that say for you to invest in certain types of offerings, you must be what's called an accredited investor. Mm -hmm. And that means, and this, under the, the latest definition, 
which was which was recently updated uh, in August of last year. It means that you individually make two hundred thousand dollars a year and have made that much uh, for at least the last two years and expect to continue making that much or as a household three hundred thousand and or you have a net worth of at least one million dollars and that excludes and we may come back to this your primary residence. Mm. That was the last most significant change made to this definition mm. was the exclusion of the primary residence from one's net worth. Mm -hmm. Now, in August, they expanded it somewhat. And there are a lot of people who were opposed to this, a lot of folks with conflicts of interest, a lot of lobbyists that had conflicts here who want to keep us non-accredited, want to keep us dependent on the status quo. But uh, it expanded to allow people with certain funeral licenses, like the licenses I held, which include uh, Series 7, which is a stockbroker's license, um, the 60, I believe the 65 and 82, if I'm not mistaken. Don't quote me on that, but it is on the website. Uh, but certain, just a handful of securities licenses, and then you could be like a venture capitalist um, and, and uh, like myself, and that would allow you to have accreditation. So they're kind of like appeasements, like let's just give these people and then maybe they'll simmer down, right? But it doesn't extend to their clients, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, essentially what that boils down to is less than 15% of Americans are accredited. And according to the um, Angel Capital Association, which is the largest group of angel investors, people who invest out of their own money, um, of those accredited investors, less than 2% are black, mm. less than 3% are Hispanic or Latinx. And so what that means is that when you extrapolate that into the whole population of us, that less than 1% of black Americans, for example, are accredited investors. So that means, you know, when you look at 15% of the, the general pool, you, you will see the average white American who's going out to raise capital has approximately a, a 14 to 15 times advantage in terms of access to capital at the friends and family round. Um, but that said, you know, 75% of all Americans are paycheck to paycheck. Um, that that pool of uh, accredited investors extends just like a little bit beyond those who have proximity to that um, by virtue of neighborhood, going back to the redlining, right? Um, mm -hmm. School affiliation and things like that. And then we, of course, we know that if you come from a certain background, it's much easier to assimilate into certain communities than others, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, this, is the, this is the rule, the accredited investor rule. It's rule 501 of regulation D. And so when I was mentioning there's certain kinds of investments you can invest in at all, uh, one kind is, is called a Reg D 506C offering. And the letters and, and numbers aren't as significant as what they mean. And so a Reg D 506C offering is an offering where you can go out and advertise on Agent Key's radio show and say, I'm raising capital for my startup. Come on and get in. If you're not accredited under that type of offering, you cannot participate at all. <laughs> and so, um, you know, this is something that we're trying to change because, uh, you know, this has historic significance just in the same way, Keisha, of how you, you did a fine job of, of describing the uh, real estate redlining. And that was codified, by the way, by the, the Federal Housing Authority and the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which were both formed under uh, New Deal era, this is a Great Depression era when the stock market had crashed in 1929, things went all bad where everyone was soup kitchens, it was grapes of wrath, all of that. Right. Uh, during the Great Depression, uh, the president put forth all of these, formed all of these agencies, and those were two of them that dealt with the real estate, and they, they codified this redlining. Well, the SEC was formed in that same year, but it was more covert in the way that it, it redlined. But just to give a little context, this is not long after Birth of America came out, the, the, the motion picture the film mm -hmm. that revitalized the Ku Klux Klan. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, it was a, the, the era in which Tulsa, the Black Wall Street, mm -hmm. Rosewood, and other communities across Black affluent communities mm -hmm. that had them down down and one generation removed from slavery, one and two generations removed from slavery. And they were prospering and there were, were jealous, indignant communities that came and burnt them down. And there were policies put in place to dismantle those communities all the way up and through the 60s. Right. And so this was the era that these, uh, these policies were put in place to prevent us from acquiring wealth from investing 
And it, and it really disadvantaged the majority of Americans, but the difference was because of real estate redlining, some communities, white communities, and I hate to, you know, I'm not a, a proponent of divide and conquer. I wanna be friends with my, I want the rainbow coalition, just like Fred Hampton said, right? And Jesse Jackson, you know, ran with. Uh, you know, so I, this is not to, to name chain, blame any particular person right. for being a beneficiary of these policies. But if you are white, they would incentivize you to go and buy homes in the suburbs or to, you know, buy these segregated properties that would appreciate and that you could, you could buy for, for very little at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that allowed those communities to build wealth and become accredited, mm -hmm. whereas black people were not able to build wealth in real estate and were less able to become accredited. Can I add something right there to what you're saying? Because you you mentioned, and we're always so careful when we say the word white, we don't want to discriminate, but when we are talking about this issue, discrimination occurred. And so in order to pinpoint the topic of discussion, we have to use words like white and black. And we need to become more comfortable and transparent if we say that we are serious about dismantling. If we're saying we're serious about kumbaya, we've got to call things out for what they are. And we can't play this politically correct game. We don't do that on this show. We don't do that on this station. So just FYI, if you're ever tuning into KDEE, don't get offended if you hear a specific conversation about white versus black. It's not that we are in any way um, condoning the two races against each other. That is that is not it at all. What we're saying is that there was something that occurred in our history. This is who it was between. And if we're going to fix it, we need to call it out for what it is. Yes. But we need everybody to participate in fixing it, whether you're white, black, red, brown, purple, green, whatever. We've all got to acknowledge it and we've all got to fix it. So I just That's want right. to add. That's right. And my mother is white. You know, she was white, rest her soul. You know, I grew up in a, a predominantly white community in Calusa County. I was born in Oakland, California, but I spent my childhood in that community. Um, so I've seen both sides. I've seen people who were implicitly racist, didn't want to be want to be good people. We all want to be good people. I've seen, uh, you know, internalized racism in black communities. Right. So right. the point is a lot of these um, a lot of these things were put in place, like moving white people out into the to the suburbs and what to keep us divided. And I tell this right. sometimes. I'm an ethnic studies minor. You know, I went to Cal and I majored in, in rhetoric of narrative in the image, but I minored in ethnic studies and Pan-African studies. And when I first started like learning the history, African-American history, which my mom really didn't teach me, um, I was so hurt. It was like reading you know, the diary of Anne Frank, you know, or reading about Hiroshima, you know, I just get so hurt at the things that human beings can do to each other, like how we can dehumanize, you know. I, I was just hurt reading Frederick Douglass and Ulata Equiano and Phyllis Wheatley and Ida B. Wells, you know, my heart was broken, narrative in the heart of a slave woman, like, you know, um, it broke my heart, it really, it really did. And so I went through like a period of depression just off of realizing what it took to maintain the institution of slavery. Because not only did it dehumanize and terrorize and torture black bodies, but it did something to the psychology of white people to maintain yeah. this institution. You right. can't come out of this unscathed, right. okay? So we're all traumatized from this. Right. This is impacted us all, some, some greater than others. But that what is was a really good point. That's a really good point because we're looking at, I think just now recently as Blacks, we are looking at the PTSD of it all. But I think that we should also turn that towards our white counterparts. There has to be a certain amount of, we, and I think we inadvertently call it, or not inadvertently, I'm not sure about the word, white privilege. We, we use the word white privilege and what that is, I think, is it's it's something subconsciously within them that is a product, a byproduct of this thought process that you're talking about. If you're right. doing this and you're engaging in it, there's there's something psychologically that's happening to you as well. And it gets there, there's a privilege in the the coddling 
the keeping apart, right? A lot of people have a cognitive dissonance when you talk about, like I, I got into it with a friend from church on Facebook, you know, when I posted about one of these examples about appraisal and he just wanted to believe it was an isolated incident. And I said, no, my friend, it's not. Before you make that assumption, when I'm, when I'm telling you this is what it is, that it's systemic, do the research. I'm gonna give you a couple of leads, but next time you need to do the work instead of assuming that I'm incorrect when I'm, and before you come and tell me, no, you're wrong, go and do the background research because I'm not making this claim out of nothing. I have to do the work because this impacts me and my community every day. I don't have a choice to be in a bubble. And that's where the privilege comes in. Mm-hmm. But there's also this fragility that we hear about, right? And I understand that, you know, when you get confronted with racism and you've been in this bubble of privilege, there's cortisol that's released in your body. It literally cre- creates a physiological response. You might blush, you might tremble, mm-hmm. you might feel angry. There's a lot of emotions that are triggered because there's a cognitive dissonance right. that your psychology is trying to justify so that you're not disrupted from this, this privilege that you've had. And I, I see how people respond to it in my own family and externally. But I want to go back to this point. One thing that really brought some kind of empathy or understanding to me after uh, reading about more and learning about more of, you know, my history as a black woman in America, multi-ethnic though I may be, because there was and there was a lot of mixing going on. There was two million mixed black people at the time of emancipation. And, you know, in America, it's the one drop rule. Right. Yeah. One drop black, you black, you know, following after the condition of the mother. So, you know, one of the things that helped to heal me was that I read this book called uh, A Different Mirror by Robert Takaki. And it talks about, you know, the different immigrants that came from Italy, from Ireland, from, you know, different from China, from Asia, from Japan, you know, from from different countries and what their experience was like in America. But it goes back to Jamestown, to the founding, the founding colonies. And it talks about how 75 percent of the white people who came to this country were indentured. They were indentured. Right. So they weren't free. And at the time, there was no distinction between black and white laborers. They were they were brought to this country. But what happened was that, you know, there was this Indian situation, right? The indigenous peoples, the First Nations that were here that, you know, the colonists were essentially trying to dispossess of their land. So at some point, there was a, a guy named Bacon who decided to put together a coalition of black and white laborers to go fight the First Nations. And uh, there was another gentleman, Berkeley, who said, no, don't give them guns because they're going to come against us, the elite, the 25 percent of white America, uh, white people in this country that were the elite that oppressed the others. Right. Uh, or exploited, I should say, exploited and oppressed. And so what happened was Bacon was like, oh, no, we're good. We're just going to go handle this Native American situation or Indians, as they called them at the time. And so they did. And then those black and white folks that were oppressed, that did not have freedom, they came down and they burnt Jamestown to the ground. They burnt it down. And that was Bacon's Rebellion. And so the elites went off on their ships at sea and they sent their negotiators and they said, oh, we're going to you know, make these concessions and everything will be okay. Well, what happened after that point is they put in place uh, the slave codes, which then differentiated Black people from white people when it came to their conditions. So Black people became enslaved for life and white people were allowed to uh, to earn their freedom. But what it also did, it said, is if this white woman has a black child, that child could be sold into slavery. And depending on the colony, you know, the white woman could be sold into slavery. And so what that created was the divide and conquer, where if you are a poor white, you do not want to associate with black people because it's going to diminish your rights and your privileges. But if you if you behave and you conform to this notion of whiteness that was created to justify this exploitation of bodies, you know, and now it's been color coded as black bodies and, and reinforced it through all these different levels of racism, scientifically, sociologically, the re- revisionist writing of history. All of this was to reinforce this notion of whiteness that created a divide and conquer. And if you got an MBA or city business, that's one on one management. You divide and conquer, whether it's a big task that you break down into little pieces or if it's people groups that you want to keep oppressive within a system hege- of hegemony. You divide them and that's how you conquer. If it's a black family unit, you start, you know, wedging a divide between the black man and the black woman, between the black woman and the black child, wherever you can breed dysfunction, you now destabilize. Do you see what I'm saying? And so that's what these complications were to separate us and keep us from having the empathy of understanding each other culturally to perpetuate this racist ideology. 
what you're saying now is just a prime example of what's been happening over the past four years in politics. Absolutely. And then look at the result of our nation right now. And if you think about, if you take the politics out of it and we just deal with the humanity of it all, I, I just, I pray that we can get to that point. I'm not a Democrat and I'm not a Republican, but I have friends who are Democrats. I have friends who are Republicans. I have friends who are hurting today because Rush Limbaugh died. I have friends who are saying good riddance, Rush Limbaugh died, you know? And I just don't, I, I'm just, when it comes to what is right, I remember a saying my grandmother had, she said, right gonna always win. Hmm. And that just, that stuck with me. She, she would say that from the time I was a little girl, I remember her saying that. And so it sticks with me and so much so that it supersedes politics. It, it supersedes color. You know, it's about humanity, right is right. And if we're looking at the issue of redlining, if we're looking at the ramifications, just because you put a law in place doesn't mean that the players change. That's something to do with character. The person that's in the position of power is the one who holds the card. And as you were saying earlier, you talked about barriers and were they legit? You know, they, they, they could have been barriers. They, they, they appear to be barriers. But when you read them, according to the letter of the law, it's legit. But in practice, they are barriers. And so for someone on the other side looking in, and I love how you, how you likened it or, you know, basically just called out the cognitive dissonance. We don't like being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Instinctively and intuitively, our minds do not like discomfort. You start making me uncomfortable about what my mind is accustomed to. And, and there's something inside of us that sends up red flags because it's a protective mechanism as humans to say, okay, something's about to change. You'd better you know, get into a defensive position. We need to recognize that that's what's happening when we get presented with things. If you are, if you are a, a white viewer or listener right now and you're watching this and you, you get kind of uncomfortable and upset when people say black lives matter, you get a little bit uncomfortable and upset when you hear a black person talking and they're not speaking the King's English, you know, you get a little bit uncomfortable and upset because you're driving through South Sac. Ask yourself why, where's that coming from? Where's that coming from? And then how did black people get here? And don't just dismiss it and say, we should, you know, laws are in place now, they should just fix it and make it better. As you can see, it's ingrained. It's systemic. It is it's systemic and systematic, it's you know, there. and you see like the, 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 um, the Fair Housing Act of 1968 actually, um, you know, made redlining illegal. But as you can see from the example you gave earlier around the appraisal, it still happens, right? This is, it's still codified in the practices, right? And in, in, in the biases that may be implicit or they may be, you know, like, okay, I'm going to get away with it and I'm going to be opportunistic. And that's, you know, that's, you know, you, you're aware that you're going to get away with it. Just like when the, when the lady called the police on uh, the gentleman in, in, in New York and at the right. park, you know, mm -hmm. she threatened him because she knew that the system was set up to her advantage. Right. right. And, and this is someone who voted for Obama, you know, and she probably wasn't even thinking consciously because she was so self-absorbed at the time of how she was feeling of what it really meant until after she was held accountable. But just because things have been made illegal doesn't mean that that the uh, that the, the whole population changes our hearts and minds overnight. That's a uh, that's there's more work that needs to be done for that. But the point about this redlining is that it disadvantages all of us ultimately, not only because it causes uh, distress, it causes this disease, it pits us against each other and makes some people feel guilty or ashamed. Um, it makes some people feel undervalued and oppressed. Uh, it causes all of these things like sociologically 
but it also disadvantages us all economically. The Center for Global Policy Solutions found that we lose 9 million jobs and at least 300 billion in net, collect in net collective income annually due to the discriminatory finance practices. So you talked about like the CARES loans and you know just all throughout the levels. This is, this is, these are jobs and income that we should all be earning. That's not color coded. McKinsey did an analysis of the racial wealth gap, which has been attributed to, to redlining, right? And, and they focused on the real estate redlining because no one's really been looking at the securities and the startups redlining. No one's really investigated that in terms of the separate and unequal access and opportunities or privileges and protections, as they call it, under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. Right. And so, you know, just in the real estate alone, we know that we have this this wealth gap that's over 10x. Right. And they, they attribute it to that. And they say that if we close the wealth gap, it would increase our GDP five to seven percent and add mm -hmm. over a trillion dollars to our economy within 10 years. So I this love is, it's all of us. We're all and we need to rebuild and we need to rebuild together in such a way that uh, we're not afraid of each other. We're not we're not playing shenanigans, you know, and, and that we're not feeling like if I take away from if I give opportunity, equitable opportunity to one that mm -hmm. I'm taking away from another. Right, right? right. Because this is America. We create we build. Right. right, right. Like we, we see the opportunity. We've come across seas. We've gone across mountains to seize opportunities. We make pies. Okay. And we're building as a democracy for the rest of the world to see how things are supposed to be done. And we should be continue to be that example. We're going to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to come back with a few solutions for our audience. If you've ever been discriminated against, we're going to come back with the petition information from Mariah. And you've been listening to 97.5 FM KDEE. I am Agent Key, and we'll be right back. I'm glad you brought that up because I had read that and um, I've seen that a few times and it's pretty much whatever's good for the goose is good for the gander. If you take care of the lowest on the totem pole, everybody will That's rise. Right. And That's I think we need to get in that mindset, but it's also, it also will call for those who, because you mentioned it earlier, you've got lobbyists and special interest groups that are trying to protect their money and and they have a lot of it and so they start pointing it and pouring it in the direction opposing what will be good for the whole and we've got to recognize that as a nation that there are special interest groups there are lobbyists there are big players out there who are wagging the dog we saw that, especially with this whole brouhaha over GameStop and hedge funds. And guess who got, you know, at the end of the day, the short end of the stick landed in the hands of the what they call the main street or the retail investors. And what does that mean? Retail It's the opposite of wholesale. Wholesale is a private market where you got to be accredited to get into certain kind of deals. And there's separate and unequal rules based on your income and net worth. But the retail investors, you know, it's still hard to get into certain deals. But, you know, you don't have to be accredited for most of these opportunities. Everybody can play. Right. Everybody and and they and when you disrupt that, you know, um, there's there's people in there that that they know the system. They they, they it's well-oiled cog. And when you look at what happened with Bernie Madoff, he turned himself in. But I have personally spoken to one of the whistleblowers mm. uh, and they reported this man with the evidence on the silver platter for over five years. And the SEC did nothing because of who Bernie was. Right. You know, who, who he scary, was. That is a very scary thought. And we think about there are so many other people like that who are protected. Jerry Epstein protected yes. for years. I mean, you know, Einstein, Cosby. Yeah, all of them, and it's not even you know because it's a proximity to power, mm -hmm. right? You worked hard to build your network. Now you have access to Weinstein or Weinstein or or Cosby, and if it goes down, your little proximity to that power goes down. You don't want to give that up, so you're going to side with the person in power rather than the person who's been victimized. Right. Well, that's what happens. It happens in families when you've got a child molester even. And you know, it happens in the black communities more often than not. It happens in our court systems. Absolutely. We don't have the, the proper representation. The, the laws weren't created for us, for us. They were created 
against us and just another form of slavery. And it sounds cliche-ish to say, but it really is. You made me think of the Ursula Burns quote. I want to give her attribution when we come back. Okay. Okay. We have about six minutes. Hey, everyone, we're back. You're listening to 97.5 FM KDEE, and we are talking redlining in 2021. What is it and how do we dismantle it? My special guest today, Miss Mariah Lichtenstern. Before we went to the break, she started talking about, and I wanted to be to continue what removing redlining actually does for the community as a whole. Can you continue with that? Yeah, we were talking on break, and I wanted to attribute Ursula Burns, who was the CEO of, of Xerox, and she made a point in a conversation that she did not too long ago with uh, Robert Smith, who happens to be the richest black man in America. We'll talk about that another day, uh, <laughs> but he's also in private equity. And Ursula, beautiful black woman, so bad. She said the rules were written to benefit those in power, right? And so when you talk about, you know, she was referring specifically to qualifications for, uh, for people to be on public boards, board of directors. Um, but in all of these different situations, whether it's a barrier to entry in terms of qualifying for institutional capital or, you know, uh, being able to raise a certain type of offering, um, these rules were written to benefit the status quo, to keep power in the hands of a predictable few. And, you know, honestly, the Pentagon put out, uh, you know, a study, they, they commissioned a study with the Ivy League schools to, to look at what changes in economic power would, would what those implications would be. So, this, I mean, I just watched Judas and the Black Messiah over the weekend. If y'all haven't checked it out, it's on HBO and it's in theaters and it's, it's produced by a wonderful, amazing Black man. Um, uh, one of the executive producers, I should say, uh, it's Macro and Charles King. And, uh, you know, this is something I studied as an undergrad. I studied the history of the civil rights movement. Like I said, I'm an ethnic and Pan-African cities minor. So I studied the history of the Black Panther Party for self-defense and other movements, right, that were impacted by our government under COINTELPRO, which was like only 2% of the resources, so to speak, but it was significant. And I mean, I imagine what would have happened where Chicago would be right now if the protagonist of this film, Judas and the Black Messiah, Fred Hampton, hadn't been assassinated by mm. our government and, and the police of Chicago, who went into his home in the middle of the night as he laid next to his pregnant wife, about to be incarcerated for a petty thing that, you know, that's another issue, but he was literally assassinated. This has been admitted. Uh, it was a 12-year lawsuit over it. Okay, these are the kind of things where, you know, this is institutional to maintain systems of power, right? And so, you know, it affects our communities and affects our interactivity, but we can do, this is a time. The zeitgeist is now where we have woken up. We watch George Floyd. This is nothing new. We've been seeing it for hundreds of years. Ida B. Wells wrote about it. You know, she fled for a life over, you know, people trying to shut her down. But we have a collective awareness and we need to seize upon this moment. And, you know, we're not all going to get it right and say all the right things, but we have to support each other and continuing to do the work. So right. this is just a piece of the work of dismantling the systemic racism, this divide and conquer and trusting that we, the people, can form a more perfect union. Mm. That we don't need to keep things in the hands of the cronies, not to say that we're going to, you know, um, throw capitalism on its ear, but that doesn't mean that we can't innovate and make it more humane, right? Right. There's things that we can do. So that's what part of this petition is for. And again, you can go to techfundingequity.com and you can see the petition on move on. Please sign the petition. Last I looked, we were like seven short of our next milestone. But, you know, it's, it's not just about the signatures because you don't need a bunch of signatures to influence the SEC, mm -hmm. uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, you need ideas, you need data. But the reason why I'm doing this petition and, and doing these speaking engagements is because I want us to know what's mm -hmm. been hidden from us, what's, what we don't even what we're not even aware of as opportunities. I've spent right. 20 years going down this rabbit hole to get to the root of why there's these inequities. When I'm looking around my community in Oakland, California, and I'm seeing funerals happen every weekend with teenagers fighting over land that they don't even own, right. over drugs because they can't get jobs that will pay a living wage and give them a social safety net. This is the root of why I do this. 
Right. This is the root of it. I lost two brothers at 17 years old. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so this is what I found. And I was going to use what modicum of privilege I have as a mixed chick and whatever else educated to benefit the people who don't have this access to bring, go into those rooms and extract the information and bring it out. You don't have to be sophisticated to make a good bet. Mm-hmm. You don't. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you got money to go buy some Louis Vuittons or a Chanel bag, you can invest in a startup. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? And maybe you don't know all the analysis of the company, but you know that founder, you trust that founder and you can have a lawyer or a CPA or somebody like that. Look over the deal and explain things to you, just like if you're going to buy a house. Right. But like you said, you know, people have put in these things, whether it's credit, whether it's, you know, debt to income when it comes to student loans. You, you know, we looked at that that article and it was mentioning how so many more black buyers have student loans because our parents aren't taking aren't. aren't paying our education. We don't have right. the same generational wealth. So it's a perpetuation. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, you know, you could easily, I won't say easily, but there could be rules that say we're going to exclude education from DTI. Right. right. Policy that we can advocate for. And so the point in doing this petition and other things is to bring policy to the people. Right. Okay? Because we, the people govern this nation. This is what it was designed to do. But when we let things like uh, Citizens United and all these things slide under our radar, because we think our vote doesn't count. We think our voice doesn't count. We think that that's a domain of white people or some other dysfunction that we have been terrorized into believing. Because if you are uppity Negro or Negra, you'd be hanging from the tree. Mm. That's trauma. That's psychological Mm. trauma where people coming from other countries that are black, a black majority, they don't know that this is what black Americans have been through, this kind of trauma. Right. Lynchings, you right. know, downtown, all draggings, all of that stuff has led us to where we teach our kids. If you are articulate, you talking white. Right. So President Obama talked about that. And I, you know what? You can talk any kind of way you want. I don't care. Let's preserve our the cultures that we have created when we've right. had everything else taken from us. I honor and respect that. Mm-hmm. But we don't have to be all such much. You know, we each have our roles to play in society, but we should have opportunities at the very least, to build to build wealth, right. to have security, to have safety nets, to have dignity. Do you see what I'm saying? And so that's what this is about. And we can have that policy to the people and, and not have some kind of pedigree. Right. It doesn't require that. You saw these folks marching on the Capitol, you know, doing some nonsense. It doesn't take all of that. It doesn't. It could be as simple as signing a petition on your smartphone right. that, that moves the needle. Right. And so that's what these are the solutions that we can that we can take to the government saying that we the people demand that this changes to that point. When you said you can go right to your smartphone and sign the petition, I think the advent of technology, the smartphone, the camera, all of that is just to an historic advantage to blacks in particular in America, because now we can catch things on tape, on film that can't be denied. And not that it's not that having it, you know, will will um, stop it from happening. As we can see, you know, there are lots of things that get caught on camera and then the system comes back and says, oh, nope, they're innocent. And, you know, it's like, what the heck? But that it does bring to people's view. Here's the truth. Here's what's really going on. What's been hidden for so long. And at the same time, it's allowed the investment world to open up to us. It's allowed us to voice our opinion, like you say, through moveon.org, right there at the tip of our phones, your voice can be heard. You can create a petition if you want. If you get in front of a cause and you're passionate about it enough, and you, as my grandma say, the truth gonna always win. If you shout the truth loud enough to enough people, we will win, we will prevail. So to those individuals who are in the investment world, who are in real estate, it really boils down to a personal choice. Just because everyone else in the room is doing something to the, I I won't use that phrase to the left, I don't want you to think this is political. Just because everyone else in the room is doing something unconscionable, you have the opportunity to make a conscious choice. It's been ingrained in me from, I think, from my Lord since I was little that I will probably always be the one in the room doing the other thing because it's the right thing to do. Sometimes you got to stand alone. Sometimes you have to stand alone. So if you are in a leadership position, you're in real estate, 
you're in investing, whether you're the appraiser, you're the agent, you sit on a board, whatever, you're the seller. Make a continuable choice to do the right thing and don't be concerned about the ramifications. Mariah, do you want to have a few closing words really quickly before we- I, I do want to, I want to point out that this, the SEC, you know, when this stuff came out, redlining started, this was, you know, I just want to highlight, this is not partisan. This was the Democratic Party. This was Franklin, Lee, Franklin D. Roosevelt. And when Lyndon B. Johnson, who was also a Democrat, signed, uh, you know, the the Fair Housing Act and other civil rights legislation, he said, I, I fear I've lost the South to the Republican Party for the next 20 years. You know what I mean? So this this issue is not about party lines. We need to fix the issues. And right. I also want to say your point about technology, this leveling of the playing field, I think, is part of what caused this backlash that we saw in the last four years, where now technology was used to to do a lot of other nefarious things. Mm -hmm. And what we need to use it to do is to unify right. on the things that matter to us all. Very you good. Have your opinion on the uh, all the little peripheral things. But Very let's come together on what matters for us all. Thank you for having me today. Thank you so much for being on the show, lady. We are over time and I'm going to take all the backlash. I don't know what's going to happen to me, but <laughs> this was a very important show. And we are definitely going to have you back again if you would come back, ma'am. <laughs> I love you. Thank you so much. You're listening to 97.5 FM KDEE. I am Agent Key. And remember, everyone, if you are doing what you were created to do, I'll see you at the top. Bye-bye.